Um, I was going to, ha I had this epiphany, I was going to preach from my iPad, this, because all cool preachers preach from their iPads these days. Um, but after what happened to Larry last week, superior technology. Unless I catch fire, we're good. Okay? So, we are good. I have my iPad, I even brought it. It's sitting in the seat down there, and I, I chickened out about halfway through, and I'm like, I'm not doing it. So, um... So, superior technology, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, that's where we're going to be today. Um, and can I just thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart for being the kind of church that would allow and encourage their leaders to take sabbaticals. Um, the beautiful thing about North Wake is there is long tenure everywhere. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. But the pastoral ministry particularly is a lifestyle more than a job. And it's really hard to figure out when you can lay things down and just rest. Because there's always more to do. There's always another person you could minister to. There's always something else you could be doing at that moment in time. And it's all running through your head. All the hurts and the pain and the things that are going on within the congregation. And you never quite get that time of... <sighs> Some of you have jobs that are similar. It's more of a lifestyle. It's not really, You don't really get to punch in and punch out. You just live it. And... So thank you. Uh, this was such a gift to me and to my family. Um, as Daniel alluded to, it didn't quite turn out as I had it planned, my whole sabbatical plan. The last sabbatical I took, I wrote a doctoral dissertation, not really sabbatical. Um, it was not fun. Well, I guess it was fun to be done with it, but it was not fun in the meantime. It wasn't really restful. This one, when I handed my... Uh, sabbatical plan into Larry and the other elders it was basically I'm going to spend time with my family I'm going to rest I'm not going to read anything other than the Bible I'm not going to write anything and I'm going to blow off the dust on my fishing rod <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do um, God had other plans for me and um, through some physical suffering in my family and some other things going on um, it was a good sabbatical, but it was radically different than I had expected. It was good in a Romans 8, 28 and 29 way. You know, God promises that he will work things for the good for those who love him. But in the next verse, in verse 29, he says, he, he qualifies what that good is. That you would be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's your greatest good, and therefore, everything can be trusted in his hand, and that's the kind of summer I had. So what you hear today, what you're getting ready to, to listen to is just the fruit of that. And, um, you know, sometimes when you slow down and you back away from things and you're able to take things and set them down, when you look in the mirror, you're pretty shocked at what's staring back at you. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I don't know if, if at some point in your life 
the Lord has taken a huge big spotlight or a huge mirror and thrown it up in front of you and says, look. And what's staring back to you isn't really as pretty as you thought you were. Isn't beautiful. You know, this dynamic is like what happens to us um, when we consume a wonderful meal. This is all hypothetical. I just made this up, okay? When you consume all 16 ounces of that fat marbled ribeye, and you take in that twice-baked potato with all the sour cream and cheddar cheese and bacon bits and everything you can stuff in that thing, You have a little side of fried okra because you're from the south. And you eat a salad just because that sounds like you should after all that other stuff. And then you wash it down with a huge glass of sweet tea. And usually nowadays the restaurant doesn't make it quite sweet enough, not like grandma used to, so you add more sugar and make it really good and sweet. And with no doubt, that's all going to be followed up by some dessert, some rich chocolate cake and some ice cream. Now, as you, your taste buds soar, are you getting hungry? Because I'm starting to get hungry. <laughs> as your taste buds soar, you enjoy the, every morsel. Your mouth is watering. You, you simply have no interest in having a conversation with anybody about what that meal is doing to your body and to your waistline. You don't want, you're not motivated to have a conversation about cholesterol or fat content or sugar content. No, you just want to savor every delectable morsel. You want to consume all the steak and potato while they're hot and good. And no matter how full you are, you're planning to consume a very hearty piece of four-layer double chocolate mousse cake with a little vanilla bean ice cream, all hypothetical, uh, vanilla bean ice cream on the side, and you're going to wash it down with a good, strong cup of coffee. Mm. You see, in the midst of your perpetual romance with this food or with the world, or the sweet treats it offers, it's very hard for you and I to step back and to take a hard, earnest look at reality. You don't want to mess up your joyful delirium you're experiencing with every bite of that four-layer chocolate mousse cake. Mm. Don't mess with me while I'm doing that. Because you, you're living in a fairy tale world. A world with no accountability and no consequences. And the moment is absolutely exhilarating. But reality is waiting just around the corner. Particularly if you're over 40. Someday, somehow, someway, you're going to look in the mirror and reality is going to hit you right in the face. Or should I say, right in the waistline. And then what? Where will the hope and joy come from? When you finally step back and look at reality and the outcome of your sinful indulgences, where will your hope come from? 
when you realize, although you profess Jesus as your Savior, you don't look anything like him. Then what? My guess is today that this room is filled with with people. If they were honest with themselves, if God thrust a mirror in front of you, you will have to admit you're struggling. You're struggling with a particular sin, with doubts, with fear, with guilt. You're a struggling Christian who avoids the mirrors at all costs. But if you do catch a glance, what you see is ugly to you. It's broken. It's a mess. Today is all about recognizing once again. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, that Jesus meets every spiritual need you have. Every single one. That the reality is that you are radically broken. My working title for today was the messy me. The mess that is me in the hope of the gospel. There is one greater than all of your sin. There is hope because Jesus is enough. The lyrics of the song that Daniel just sang for us have haunted me all summer and given me great hope. Give me Christ or else I die. All of us are dying. Everyone in this room. But Christ has come, and he's come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. And so today, that's all we're going to talk about. It's going to be a really simple, not really high academics. Jesus is enough. That's all you need to know. Paul, in Colossians 1, in verse 13, says something incredible. So when you're staring at yourself in the mirror, listen to what Paul says. Paul says this, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The reality is that you and I live in a very dark world. It doesn't take long to come up with that conclusion. Just turn your computer on, look at the news page. It's there right in front of you. Darkness is everywhere. And if we're not careful, we'll get sucked into the real- to what we see as being reality. That it is dark and there is no hope and things are going to hell in a handbasket. And my goodness, please, I just quit watching the news. It is awful. But Paul says it's not the end. Look. Look what God has done. 
He tells the church, you have been delivered. You have been rescued. That world of darkness, that domain, that, that kingdom that you lived in when you had no hope, when you were living for everything under the sun, and it became meaningless. What happened? What happened in your life at that point? Remember with me, what happened? Christ rescued you. He came into the dark world and rescued you where you were. He delivered you from a kingdom filled with slavery and darkness and evil into a glorious new one filled with freedom and light and righteousness. So what do you see when you look in that mirror? As a struggling believer, what do you see? Do you see the dark emptiness of your old life? Or do you see the newness of the kingdom for which God has transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son? You see, when you hear this promise and you look into the mirror, You should see the realities of a realized eschatology. What is to come? What has come and what is to come? This verse tells me that the image I see in the mirror is not the end. God is not about oppression or abandonment. He hasn't written me off. He is about rescue. Even when I'm stiff-necked and rebellious rescues me. He delivers me. And He has delivered me and He will continue to deliver me. In the fall of 2010, billions of people around the world, around the globe, were captivated by the story of the Chilean miners. I don't know if you read that or, or, or heard about it, but trapped beneath 2,000 feet of solid rock were 30 Three men who were desperate. The collapse of the main tunnel had sealed their exit and had thrust them into a survival mode. They ate two spoonfuls of tuna, a sip of milk, and a morsel of peaches every other day. For two months, they prayed for someone to save them. And on the surface above, the Chilean rescue team worked along, around the clock, along with consultants from NASA, met with many experts. They designed a 13-foot-tall capsule and drilled a tunnel. There was no guarantee of, guarantee of success. No one had ever been trapped underground this long and lived to tell about it. But now... Someone has. On October 13th, 2010, the man began to merge, slapping high fives and leading victory chants. A great-grandfather, a 40-year-old who was planning a, a wedding, a 19-year-old young man, 
all had different stories, but all had made the same decision. They trusted someone else to save them. No one returned the rescue offer with a declaration of independence. I can get myself out of this. They had stared at the stone tomb long enough to reach the unanimous opinion. We need help. We need someone to penetrate this world and pull us out. And when the rescue capsule came down the shaft, they jumped in. The reality is, you and I need help. We're messy. But listen to this. God has entered into the darkness of your tomb. Your dungeon of death. He has penetrated the impenetrable. He has entered into your life of slavery, of darkness, of evil and despair. And has made a way to deliver you from the control of this utter darkness. And he's offered you freedom. Life in a new kingdom. With a new king. This is the kingdom of the beloved son. This doesn't operate like what we're used to where the domain of darkness is ruled and established through money and power and success. Tim Keller says this, Jesus' kingship wins influence through suffering service, losing power, giving all away, and dying. This king bears our judgment rather than bringing it. In Jesus, this passage tells us We have redemption. We have the forgiveness of our sins. So what does it mean, redemption? Not a word we use very often. It's packed with lots of meaning. But what do you know it to mean? Redemption, to redeem something is to buy it back. To release someone from slavery, from captivity by the payment of a ransom. Redemption then is the action that secures someone's release you see the kingdom of the beloved son is enacted by the coming of the king to redeem his people from slavery and to forgive their sins to pay their price Ephesians 1 7 and 8 is very instructive and goes right along with this passage And it says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavishes on us. When was the last time? Someone lavished something on you. How amazing is this news that our inability to save ourselves or to live out what he has called us to, in that, in that state, he lavishes his grace on us. He redeems us. God's forgiveness of our sin, His grace is lavished on us. It cannot be outdone. It is endless. It is overwhelming. It is truly lavish.
struggling men and women of God, when you look in the mirror and you see guilt and shame and disgust, the truth of the gospel is this. You have no sin, past, present, or future that has more power than the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is more than enough. He has redeemed you and your sins are forgiven. Is that not good news? Is that not good news for your neighbor, for you? You don't get over that kind of stuff. You shouldn't get over that kind of stuff. It is the truth. It is the life that you breathe, the air you breathe. The kingdom in which you live is purchased by the blood of Christ. And the only freedom and forgiveness you have comes from Him. So here's hope number one summed up. Hope of the gospel for us struggling believers. This is it. Jesus is your rescuer and redeemer. When you look in the mirror and the mess looks back, you have to remember that you have been rescued, that you have been redeemed. That what's staring back at you is not the full story. His rescue, His redemption and forgiveness are not just a past event, leaving you to deal with your future sins and darkness on your own. It's not something that just happened to you when you were six years old or when you were eight and you gave your life to Christ and you were baptized and then Jesus just says, all right, now go do what you're supposed to do. Hope you don't sin anymore. No. No, he has rescued you. He has rescued you and redeemed you and forgiven you and he is continually rescuing you and redeeming you and reconciling you and forgiving you of your sins. Whatever you're struggling with, listen, redemption, it's paid for. Whatever sin has entered your life and you can't get rid of, it's paid for. Whatever guilt you're struggling with today over past sins and things you've done, it's paid for. Today you woke up and your faith is like this, it's paid for. Done. The good news of the kingdom is not freedom from hardship and suffering, folks. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. It's this. The good news of the kingdom is there is a kingly redeemer who has come to rescue us from the domain of darkness and to redeem us from the slavery of our sin. And it is not so much about you and me as it is ultimately about the lavishing grace of the preeminent one. That's it. You see, in the next verses, Paul is going to reintroduce this king, this preeminent one, to the church. The church, the Colossian church had gone astray. They had listened to heretical teaching. And they had been pushed Past just Christ to Christ and something else. Our culture, the messages you hear every single day are pushing you past Jesus. They're pushing me past Jesus. And Paul wants to reintroduce, reintroduce the church, us today, to their good and mighty King. 
that they might draw near to him. That they would find their complete sufficiency in Jesus alone. That he is enough. Now, in this hymn, um, verses 15 to 20, it's important for us to do something. Because most of us read this and it's so laden with pronouns, sometimes we get lost. Or we, the power of the reading of it sometimes gets lost on us. Or we're so familiar with it that it's just kind of like Charlie Brown teacher in the background. Listen anew with me. Take your eyes off the screen. Listen to this. Listen to what happens in your heart and the hope that floods your heart when you replace the pronouns with the proper name. Listen to this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. For if Jesus, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Who is this kingly redeemer and rescuer? Who is this beloved son of God? His name is Jesus, the preeminent one. I love this word, word preeminent. Some versions don't have that. The different words they use. Pre, how often do you get to use the word preeminent? It's a great word. What does it mean? It means top. Above all things. Before all things. Set above all things. Ahead of all things. The center of all things. Jesus is the preeminent one. He is, verses 15 and 16 tell us, God in the flesh. The image, that is to say that in Him, the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. In Him, the invisible has become visible. God has made Himself known to you. He has entered the darkness. Jesus, not only is the image of God, he created all things. And He created them for who? He's God Himself. He is the creator and the sovereign ruler over all things. Even you. Even you. Even messy old you. 
And just in case you had any questions about what holds the universe together, Paul makes it vividly clear in verse 17 and 18. It's not an idea or a virtue that holds the universe together, but a person, Jesus. You see, the resurrected Christ holds it all together. Without Him, the electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in orbit. Things in the Colossian world, things in your world, things in your personal sphere, things in this church, things in the universal church would come crashing down. Jesus holds the whole thing together. He is the preeminent one. And when your life gets out of kilter, it's because he, you, you don't see him as preeminent. You don't trust in him as the preeminent one. But Hebrews 1, 3, and 4 makes it very clear. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited, and more excellent than theirs. He is the preeminent one. Now, please don't say silly things. Please do not say... How do I make him preeminent? Or how do I give him first place? You either bow to the king or you rebel against the king. But you make no mistake, Jesus is king. He is the preeminent one. So your emotional state at any given time does not make him less than the Lord of heaven and earth. The problem is with you, not with him. He is the king of the universe. He is your savior. He is the preeminent one. Verse 18 tells us, he's not only the king of creation, he is also the head of the church and the king of recreation. He is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus has conquered the grave. His resurrection marks his triumph over all the forces that hold you and me in bondage. When you look into the mirror and you see guilt and condemnation and shame and filth, his resurrection promises you freedom. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. His redemption is enough. It's enough. That first Easter morning saw the dawn of more than a new day. It was the dawn of a new hope for humanity. It was the beginning of your real life. When's the last time you were up early enough to see the sunrise?
When was the last time you stared into the eastern sky and saw that red ball of fire? The other morning I was standing out with Matt Joyner and we were talking about some stuff. And over the top of the house we were at came this one of the most amazing sunrises I've seen in a long time. Brilliant, beautiful, red, fire red, filling the sky. And all I could think about was the resurrection and the rising of God's Son. Filling the earth with His glory. There is hope for you because Jesus is enough. Verse 19 says this. It was God's pleasure. It was God's pleasure. He was pleased. He was pleased to reconcile all things through Christ. It was God's pleasure. God delighted in Christ and by His blood He brought peace where there was no peace. Your troubles, your hurts, your dislocation bring you to a point of desperate need. It is God's good pleasure to reconcile even you, an alien and an enemy, to himself. See, you who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. This is a beautiful thing. Think about what reconciled really means. Three R's. It's the first time I've ever preached a sermon and had three R's. Rescue, redemption, reconciliation. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I, I don't know if you've thought about this for a while, but you are an alien. You are an enemy of God. That relationship was so broken you couldn't do anything. You were like a Chilean miner, thousands of feet under the ground. That's how much distance was between you and God. More. There was no hope of rescue. Not only did he make a way for you out of that depth, that tomb, he reconciled himself to you. His redemption paid your price. And not only did he pay your price, he didn't just let you go free after that. He hugged you up. You became part of Christ's family, his body. I don't know about you, but 
that's a huge deal. If I look in the mirror and I speak back to the filthiness that I see, that no, I am a chosen child of God. And the reality is, He has rescued me, He has redeemed me, and now I am reconciled to Him. Now, I might not be acting the way I should, and I need to ask for forgiveness and repent from my sin, but I am a child of God. I've been reconciled. That image should change your entire life. That should rule the way you see yourself. Nothing more than the evil one wants to do than to put you on the shelf through guilt and shame. See, I told you. I told you you weren't good enough. You just say, right, I'm not. I have three sons. Each of them are amazing in their own unique ways. And you can define amazing how you want. Um, but they're not perfect. They're not perfect. My sons, they're like their daddy. They're a mess. And they sin often. But you want to know something? No matter what they do. No matter what they do. No matter how they sin. They are my sons. They are my beloved sons. Nothing they could do could change that. They can go to the courthouse and get their name changed and do all that stuff. That does not change anything. They are my sons. And I love them deeply. I may not be pleased with everything they do. But their behavior does not change the fact that they are part of my family and they are loved. They have my heart and my attention and you have God's. As his child, you have his heart and his attention. So, hope number two. The reflection in the mirror doesn't always tell the full story. For if you have come to faith in Christ, though you might struggle with sin, you have been rescued, redeemed, and reconciled. What Jesus has done for you, not what you have done, make you holy and blameless and free, above reproach, free from accusation. You are loved and you have been brought into a family of God. You are no longer an alien from another world. You are no longer an enemy. You are family. And you are loved deeply. So Paul ends this section with verse 23 when he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So how do we continue in the faith? How do we remain stable and steadfast and not shifting? Let's put all this together. 
Today, there are two types of struggling people in this room, those who have never really thought about what I'm talking about or at least never come to a point of placing their trust in the work of Christ on the cross to save them from their sin. Today is your day. There is hope for you because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Come dirty. He will make you clean. The second type of person are people like me. Are those that have truly been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, yet they still sin. And when they look in the mirror, they feel overwhelmed by guilt and worry and fear. Today is your day. There is hope. Jesus is enough. When you look into the mirror and all you see is the mess that is me, there is hope of the gospel from Colossians 1, 13-23. And here's the simple outline. Rescue, redemption, reconciliation. So when you look in the mirror and the lies of Satan hit you right between the eyeballs, here's what you think. Number one, rescue. You're never too far gone that Jesus cannot rescue you. No one can be too far gone. The rescuer has come and he is more than enough for you today. He has conquered the control of sin by personally invading the enemy's territory in order to rescue messy people like you and me. And he has transferred them to a new kingdom. There is hope because he continues to rescue you over and over again. He will not let his children go. There is hope because Jesus is enough for you. He is your rescuer. Not only does he rescue, but he redeems. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever sin has captivated your heart, whatever deplorable thing your heart condemns you of, Christ has paid for it in full. Redemption is yours. You can't outpunt your coverage on this one. You can't do it. You cannot outsin the lavish grace of God. Now, you don't want to try that because that has other issues. But listen, you can't do it. You can't exhaust it. He has paid your bill in full. You, past, present, future sins, all been paid by the blood of his cross. All you have to do is confess them, repent and turn from them, and trust in his work. And he declares you forgiven there is hope for you even you messy Christian because Jesus is enough lastly hope of the gospel rescue, redemption and reconciliation not only has he rescued you paid the penalty for your sins he has reconciled you to himself. Your relationship with God is secure in Christ. Your sinful struggle does not de determine the outcome of your relationship. Even though you are an enemy and a foreigner to him, he has reconciled you to himself. He has reconciled all things to himself. There is now peace. When you place your trust in Christ, 
as your rescuer and redeemer, you become part of his family. There is hope because Jesus is more than enough. So today, struggling sinner, struggling saint, is he enough for you? When you look into the mirror, what do you see? The Father sees Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. So you also ought to fix your eyes on his image, on him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us as we behold him, as we gaze upon him, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Fix your eyes, as the writer of Hebrews says, on Jesus. Arm yourself with the hope of the gospel, for there will be a dark day. It's coming. And you will have to preach this same outline to yourself, as I did all summer long. Now, as the worship team comes and leads us in worship, will you do me one favor? Will you sit for a minute in quiet reflection and do whatever the Lord asks you to do? Whatever He is speaking to your heart, today is the day to act upon that. Do not be hearers of the word, dear people. Not just hearers doers of the word. Whatever the Lord has laid on your heart today, you can come down front, pray with a friend, leave all of the guilt and shame at the here. But as you leave, please don't forget one thing. There is hope. There is hope because Jesus is enough for whatever. Whatever you're thinking in your mind right now, He is enough. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, will you have your way with us? you are our rescuer, our redeemer and the agent of our reconciliation it is from you and through you and back to you we pray today that we would be a body who lives in the hope and the joy comes from knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God.
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are redeemed. 